From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 158 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, and uh, we just finished a half hour pre-show. I know. There's always warm-up, everybody. This is how we... <laughs> and and it, it suffices as warm-up, but sometimes it's actually solving world problems or just, you know, tilting at all the windmills that make us angry. So, Or today, a little bit of trash talk. But <laughs> I am going to throw out a question, gents, because I would like to know, is it better to read books in electronic form or actually hold the book? So I will give you a relax, focus, succeed perspective. For me, I read, I like to read on my Kindle or my iPad or whatever. I, I love to read books, but if it's nonfiction and I really like the book, I always end up buying the physical paper book. And that way I can make notes in the, in the, and I can have truly random access and so forth. But the, the reason I say it's a relaxed, focused, succeed perspective is if I'm just reading online for a long time, it's fiction, which is enjoyable, which is not work which is much more compatible with uh, being on a beach with sand between your toes. See, I agree with that philosophy 100%. If I'm reading it for fun and for pure entertainment purposes, the physical book is a reminder that I'm having an experience, right? It's like I went to the theater to watch a movie. Feels different from I just streamed it on my couch at home, right? Like there's, there's a very different purpose. And for entertainment, I will do that. If it is something that I'm either reading because I need to for research and I need to document and annotate and all of that, or it's something that I really, really want to remember for my professional skill set. I read 100% of those on my Kindle and I highlight the crap out of those things. And my, you know, the little feature, the summary back at the end, like you can just look at the clips of everything that you have highlighted in the book. That's like, that's like uh, really smart books for dummies, the cliff notes version in, in, in a heartbeat. So I, I, it's entirely why I'm reading. I am. So I'm definitely fun. Reading is done on the Kindle. And I, by the way, will note comic book reading has moved to the iPad because I like the high resolution. Like you actually get the really high resolution art and I can carry more. And, and the, and also I don't have to keep comic books because I'm a collector. And so I would keep them and I have boxes, boxes that have taken over my, my guest room. And so I can't get rid of them. And so this stopped the flow of comic books into my house. I actually differ from you guys on reference business reference books. I read that on my Kindle and I mark that I do actually use the like highlighter feature there. If it is a personal reference book, I buy those. So like the history of video games is on my debt, literally on my desk right now. Hold it up for like the history of video games because it's pretty and it has pictures. Like I'm, I'm looking at my rack of hidden London and uh, retro video game, like in Sherlock, the kid, like all those fun reference books. Those are physical because I actually like the art and I like to be able to actually see art and hold it. And so it's, that's a physical thing. I, I buy that strategy. And especially Anything that is travel oriented, uh, you know, it's a it's a built in memento of your time there or your aspiration to exactly. go there. The art I, of I, I, or I picture that. books, like so they're all oh, yeah. physical. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, and well, it's fun that, that we have a diff slightly different approaches for all of this, right? It is, but, and it's like, welcome to the 21st century. I love it so much. I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. <laughs> hey, modern there. medicine, man. You never know. You're going to. Well, this week we're brought to you by our friends at PCMatic, endpoint security built on a zero trust default deny foundation. Finally, a lightweight, simple to deploy, and easy to manage approach to application allow listing. It's the perfect complement to your security stack. No minimums and no annual contracts. Find out more by visiting pcmatic.com slash MSP today. Alrighty, our first story today, we want to talk about a new exchange-traded fund that focuses on Return on Character, ROC. And first of all, let me just take 30 seconds and for folks who are not investors, an exchange-traded fund takes a whole bunch of stocks and puts them together so you can trade them as one unit. It's different than a mutual fund because you can't take a a gain on something where you actually had a loss. Long story, doesn't matter. Go look it up. Uh, but there are exchange-traded funds for the NASDAQ, for technology, for um, real estate, for all kinds of stuff. So this new fund that we're going to link to looks at companies that have characters. And they say, and it's not just characters like being an oddball, uh, but integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and passion. And so it's interesting that there's, there's an exchange-traded fund and two key companies are not part of this, even though they're run by characters. Tesla and Meta <laughs> are not part of this exchange-traded fund because the character they're looking for is sort of the noble character. <laughs> yeah, they the... don't fit the criteria. Let's just call it out. There's <laughs> criteria around character. integrity, responsibility, <laughs> forgiveness, and compassion, and they don't meet it. <laughs> so what I, do you I, think about this, like, this approach to investing? I'm gonna endure, I'm gonna go and say like, look, it's super early. You know, it's been out for a few days. It's slightly up, uh, <laughs> but but I like the idea of kind of trying to capture entrepreneurial spirit and the positive elements of leadership in an actual investment strategy. There's something to that that uh, emotionally I'm very much drawn to. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say, and now I'm waiting for the data. Uh, I, I'm going to follow the. I'm following the fund. I'm going to be watching it. I'm going to look for performance over time. I believe their investment theory is likely to be correct. That over a long period of time, these qualities will result in higher performing organizations. That might be aspirational. That might be true. Now I know I can test it. So I like the theory. I want to see it succeed. I haven't put any money into it but I'm inclined to because I like the bet. See, I, I, I begin where you are, Dave. I really like the idea and I believe that it will pay off in the end. I have, uh, I have very high hopes that we can get back to a world where doing the right thing means getting the better result, right? Doing well by doing good, if you will. As a very young man in the working world, I spent a, a brief amount of time working for a nonprofit organization doing marketing. And it was built in the world of what we will call cause-related marketing. In other words, not give me a donation to my charity, but 
buy this candy bar instead of that candy bar. You will not get a discount. It's not a coupon. There's not another promotion associated with it. But when you buy candy bar A, we will make a donation on your behalf towards a cause that you have affinity with. The research on that is absolutely ironclad compelling. Humans want to support products and brands that they identify with and that support things that they identify with, right? It's why people underwrite PBS. It's why people give grants to uh, Habitat for Humanity. It's not because I'm going to go out and build the house this weekend. It's that I bought your product and you funded it and on my behalf. It works. Absolutely ironclad strategy. However, if you are going to build your fund on the basis of a direct exclusion that violates your premise, well, the most profitable companies will be the ones that have good character dot, 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 we're going to cut out the people that we know don't have good character because they will break my model and always outperform the members of my, of my fund. Um, you're, you're kind of arguing against yourself. So it, it, it will take time to see whether or not this fund by comparison can outperform the two big glaring holes of companies that they've excluded from the fund. If they can out... Think of it that way, Carl. If they, if this fund can actually over time outperform Meta and and Tesla, well, hot damn, they've really cracked the code. But until then, they're kind of actually proving the alternative case. There's been kind of a shift because ethical investing has been sort of evolving for about 30 years now. And a lot of what happens, and there are some mutual funds that basically say, look, you might make a little less money, but you're, you're actually investing in the right companies. And this is saying, no, 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 we don't, we don't have to say that we're giving up uh, any kind of profit margin <laughs> in order to invest in the right companies. We think well-run ethical companies will be more profitable, and they're sort of betting on that horse. But as you see, even you know lefties like Dave are like, oh, I'm going to wait a minute before I throw any money in there. Well, see, I have a good friend who is a very, a very staunch proponent of the invisible hand of the market, right? And that what what he says to me is, no, nobody would ever do the unethical thing in a market-based economy because over time it will come back and harm you and your bottom line performance. The, the market will not accept you. And then I say, that's cool read the newspaper, right? Like, or <laughs> anything that comes across as reality. Uh, right now you can cheat the system and it works. And I would love to see that be different. Well, I will slide in with the, I am a capitalist too. <laughs> it is possible to be leftist and also a capitalist. The two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Excellent point. All right. So uh, let's jump over to our second topic, sirs. Um, there was an announcement that you might have heard last week, and this is especially germane to our audience, people who grew up in the world heavily influenced in the channel by Microsoft. Uh, Microsoft, if you didn't hear, made an announcement that not today, but as of October, they will be completely re-architecting their channel partner program to move away from the, the silver, gold, platinum uh, tiers that we have all been familiar with for so many years, and then basically move to just you're either in or you're out. 
And yet there's an objective scorecard mechanism associated with this that is built on things like your ability to generate net new contracts and your ability to retain customers, develop specializations, focus on particular solutions or uh, segments within the vertical markets. Um, massive change. It has spawned glowing articles and it has spawned some really angry and upset reactions, as you might imagine. I am curious, guys, what, what's your take on the new architecture and their approach to engaging with channel partners? Is anyone surprised? I mean, that was my, I, I commented on this when right. I covered it on the business of tech and my statement was the, like, is anyone surprised by this? If you are, you haven't really been paying attention. Uh, there's a simplicity to it that I actually really do like either, either you're in or you're out out by the way, is not saying we're not interested in you. Whereas there are a bunch of resources that they do make available. They're essentially saying, well, you're just not as aligned with us. Here's the stuff that we make available so that you can build the business that you want to build. But by the way, this is what we're looking for. If you are aligned with us, you then are able to do the things that qualify, that get you enough points, that scores. They have a very clear vision of what that all is. And so I looked at this and I sort of said, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Binary in or out, they're clear on what's important. They have options. You want to make your own money, go your own way, do your own thing. They're happy to give you a set of resources to make that possible. This is what they care about. Shocking. It's a bunch of cloud stuff. I'm so surprised. Uh, you know, and, and you just look and go like, that makes sense to me. It almost surprises me it took this long to get there. Right. Well, I mean, again, I wrote a blog post in 2011 that said the word of the year is disintermediation. And it's been coming since then. I mean, literally in that time, which is now 11 years, Microsoft has eliminated their partner program. I mean, they basically eliminated in the last big change, turned it into a cloud program. They've eliminated the reliance on product specific certification and gone to more general certifications. Um, so again, like Dave says, I can't say that anybody is shocked, shocked. I tell you that there's gambling <laughs> going on in this institution, right? Um, so, so Microsoft is doing what they need to do. We have to step back and say, what's the bigger picture? Cause on one hand, they look to companies like Dell and Apple that have said, we don't need a partner program. And, um, to the extent that we have one, we will abuse them and, let them just work for us for free and be our marketing arm. And Microsoft has said, well, we had a variation on that, but it's cost of us a lot of money. So let's move over to the model that doesn't cost us as much money um, because it's working for lots of other companies. So that's a, that's a true piece of it. Another piece of it is, let's be honest, if you can sell everything direct and you don't need partners, you got to figure out strategically why you would have a partner program. Exactly. And, and see, I own Microsoft stock, so, you know, but I, it's <laughs> Carl's disclosure. <laughs> yes, we, we all have them, right? Um, here's, here's my takeaway on this, right? Vendor Hat says, I have a route to market strategy that is designed to maximize my coverage, my capacity, and my retention capabilities. That is why I go to market, and my job is to figure out which route is going to do that most effectively. From if I go to the other side of the table and I put on my MSP hat or my my solution provider hat, 
there's a, wait a minute, you're taking away things that I depend on for cash money that I have built my business to leverage, right? Sources of income and opportunity that I have come to rely on. And now you're taking those things away. Okay. Now I put on my analyst hat and I say, anybody who ever built their brand exclusively on the basis of, I'm here to give you access to somebody else's brand. That is a fundamentally transparent and temporary strategy. And that is the definition, the textbook definition of being a reseller. If, if all you ever did was take product A and take a product, move it from point A to point B and make a markup in the process without adding value in the process, then you were killing yourself. You were silly if you ever thought that was going to last forever. That's why we all became VARs and then we became solution providers, right? It evolves. All this program changes saying, well, no, I have two quibbles with this, right? Strategically, what they are saying is I can do the resale on my own. What I need is somebody to do the expand and retain parts of this business model. I need you aftermarket, not at the point of transaction. Okay, I get that strategically, except that one of the four principal criteria that they have indicated is going to be included for you to be able to get your 70 out of 100 minimum score is volume of new business and growth. Okay, now you're talking out of both sides of your mouth when you say that. I want you to be the aftermarket specialist. I can transact on my own. But in order for you to be in my program, you must do new business sales. You peel away all of that contradiction. And what it says fundamentally is that Microsoft's figured out the marketplace thing and they're coming for your renewals. That's as simple as it can possibly be. If all you do is learn how to service Microsoft technology and build an MSP around that capability without going out and winning new business, Microsoft's answer to you is, cool, that was good then. I don't need that anymore. Well, and I would I would make an argument that that's the wrong business to have been built on anyway. The actual value, and I've been preaching this for two years now, essentially, is the, like, look, all the value is up in the work layer. If you're, hel- you're helping people run Microsoft 365 better, get, get value out of... Teams plus OneDrive plus uh, email plus like all of those bits. Like you want to make sure those systems all work. And by the way, help them with the culture of remote working and how to be a good manager and how the technology enables it. Like all of that stuff, their part new partner program is all in on. Like really helps you with. It's the yeah we're not going to worry so much about helping you with renewals of these software pieces. But if you're worried about that kind of stuff. Uh, the market kind of missed you, buddy. Like, catch on up with the rest of us because we're over here in the services realm, which is way more interesting. The interesting thing about comparing big, big, big companies to big but not quite so big companies is that so many companies in our industry have made their success on educating partners to be better at delivering their services and integrating them with other services. And even now today, if, if a vendor came to me and said, I need a strategy to grow my business in the SMB space, that's what I would tell them to do. Microsoft is now so big that they can throttle that back a little bit, right? And just say, look, just 
just sell, just sell, just sell. And, you know, we will give you some training. We'll do all that. But uh, it won't be the, the pinnacle of your engagement with us uh, where, you know, much smaller, still still big, still billion dollar, but not trillion dollar businesses uh, have, have a different uh, approach. Um, it's almost like Microsoft has got, gotten so big that they're now acting like they're funded by private equity and they got to do that 20% a year to, to make everybody happy. Well, they kind of are because they're trying to hit certain revenue targets for themselves and grow at a pace to keep that valuation at the level that it is. Yeah, so. exactly. They are they are they are beholden to the public market as large as they are, and every di- directional change can have a massive impact on their stock price. Uh, the the most upset responses that I have heard to this at, over the last week. It sound to me like people who are mad that, you know what, I had, I cracked the code, I figured out the system, I had a good cash cow, and now you're taking it away. Well, remember, guys, this is Microsoft's business, not yours. You are not entitled to a chunk of their margin. You have to earn that. So we got to move on, but I just want to say that, that uh, Microsoft will move your cheese every 10 or 11 years. <laughs> yeah, 10 years is a long time, guys. So yeah. I want to move us on, though, to a, to the third story. And this one comes from Protocol. And with all of our discussion about AI ethics, uh, I actually liked this because it's a thoughtful implementation of the technology. This is AI specifically de- designed to help LGBTQ plus kids through the Trevor Project. And the, the, the description to this is that they are actually have been using the OpenAI GPT-2 and GPT uh, software in conjunction with Google's Albert to build training models for interactions with crisis counselors. Now, you might think, technologists might go, oh, we're going to totally deploy AI to help troubled kids. No, they didn't do that. Instead, what they did is those are still real people talking to real kids. Instead, they use this to build training models to create two simulators for crisis contact simulations. One's named Riley, one's named Drew. They have different personalities so that they can use this at scale to train counselors on how to interact, having used all of these interactions and all of the model. I wanted to highlight this because it's just such great, thoughtful implementation of the technology. But I wanted to throw it to this guy because, guys, what, what were your thoughts here and what are the lessons we can take as services companies to think about this kind of technology? So I have um, interviewed some folks, uh, um, in, in particular, uh, Vadim Peskov, who is the founder of Diffco, and they have a model AI program that is designed to help uh, advance things. Um, and, you know, another one of the people that I talked to is from Cyrano.ai, and they uh, are actually involved in another piece of this exact same project. They eventually want to train counselors through AI, but they realize you can't mess with human beings' lives as you're figuring out how something is going to work. And so they're, they're actually using it to develop sales programs, which nobody's life is on the line, um, and then taking those lessons and applying them to you know, the softer services of life. So I, I just think it's great that we're at this point in the evolution of technology where we can solve some very non-technical issues or at least begin to look at non-technical issues um, using this advanced technology. Most of our, our AI, as we call it, 
is just enough intelligence to do one tiny, tiny thing. This is a very complicated thing, and we need to just tiptoe into it because, especially when you're talking about teen suicide, uh, the stakes are pretty damn high. See, and that's that's exactly why I think they're following the correct model for applying AI, right? The, the fear that everybody has had, AI equals uh, sentient robots equals, oh my God, the humans are going to get replaced and I won't have a job anymore. No, the proper application right now of AI is to enhance or to enable the human actor to do a little bit better job, right? Like we're not, we're not replacing humans with robots. We are supplementing humans and making them better at what they do. That's the essential technological model that, that AI is, is proving works very effectively. The reason I think this is a very moving and an important application for this kind of technology, if you do the math on these things, uh, it, it is, you know, when the Trevor Project first got started, there was a lot of pushback on like, wow, this is a really big effort for a really tiny audience. It's, it's by definition, people who are not in the mainstream and the kids that need to benefit from these services, they're, they're so few and far between. Why are we making such a noise about this? That is caveman thinking, and that is no longer borne out by the actual evidence, just the quantity of teenagers who deal with these challenges, whether they are mental health, whether they are identity oriented, whether they are uh, substance abuse, whether they are uh, poverty related, the the targets of the Trevor Project, they cover Literally, that old cliche, every, if it's not you that they're talking to, they're talking to someone that you know. Every single one of us knows somebody who is going to potentially benefit from this kind of technology. And it is a better way to improve the capabilities of the humans at the front line, right? You guys, you hear the stories all the time. Something tragic happened and we've got grief counselors on site to help out. Okay. But are those grief counselors actually prepared for this type of scenario? Do, have they been trained in this kind of stuff at all? I, I can tell you from firsthand experience that almost always they are not, right? Whether it's a school shooting or a, a terrorist activity or something else like that, the humans who are on the front lines being those grief counselors Almost always their answer is, I'm here to make sure you feel okay because I've never dealt with this type of tragedy before and I'm going to do my best. Well, imagine if they have actually been trained in all of these permutations of potential scenarios without experimenting on humans and, and delicate teenagers, well, we, well, right? We like, we like not experimenting on humans. I mean, e exactly. It's the thoughtful methodology that really struck me. I mean, I love I love the story itself and I love the application of technology, but I'm really struck by this idea that they took the time to think about where could they improve their own business, essentially, of the way they deliver services. Let's talk in those terms, right? They said, you know, what we can do is we can make our own team better, faster, scalable, using these technologies versus the instant thought of, well, we're going to deploy it all the way out to the end customer. What they actually said is, is we're going to make ourselves better by using this and we're going to focus on human delivery. There's real lessons there. 
delivering, making your humans more empowered, making them better, yet being via a technology-enabled offering, yeah, that's the sweet spot, and that's why I liked it so much. What's interesting is when you think about other technologies that have evolved, we're at a point where the computing power is growing so fast and so big that we can almost expect that this will be twice as good next year and four times as good the year after that. And, you know, it, it, this will evolve very, very quickly. And I know we, well, we've been predicting all of these great things for the last five years, but it really <laughs> will happen really fast, I promise you. Uh, and, and I think it's a good thing, right? I mean, uh, I have no fear of robots or AI. Uh, I just need somebody to bring me a pizza. See? For the love, right? Right there is what we need. But I, I think you guys have hit this, right? AI is not here to replace the humans. AI is here to help the humans do their human jobs much more effectively than they could have, right? You know, that old thing we, we always have said in, in the working world versus the, the academic world, life is an open book test. Nobody's going to require you to memorize everything. It's okay to leverage a book or a reference or a resource to do your job a little bit more effectively. Well, now it's not just how frantically can you type that question into Google and see what it will crowdsource for you. Uh, you can get actual intelligent insights that make the humans better. If you were a therapist, you couldn't remember, you couldn't think of all the possible answers or questions in a specific scenario. This doesn't you know interact with the students directly or the kids directly but it interacts with the therapist who then says oh i'm going to pick that of among the possible questions that looks like the one that is going to uh have the best results um and so it's you know it's another tool uh for well, people who may or may not uh be able to on the top of their head come up with the right questions and and, and as a quick note uh, dave you asked at the beginning of this conversation what does this mean for service providers among us right uh by the way guys every one of you who is working in the world of managed services if you fear that you're about to be automated out of existence you know what the ai and the automation can't replace your facetime relationship with your customers, right? Use this metaphor to make your own world more stable and more valuable to your customers. I don't care if somebody automates the pointing and clicking of the mouse. What I care is that they can never automate the trust and the relationship that I have uh, with the other fear, humans. Fear the deep fake sales people, but that's a topic for <laughs> another time. <laughs> Very good. Well, excellent topics today. Thank you both. And that will do it for episode 158 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.